the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. And we are in part two of our integrity series, and I hope this helps you thrive through all the stages of life. Uh, right up until the end. I've got Caitlin Beattie today, and we're going to talk about Christian celebrity culture. We're going there. We're talking about personas, platforms, and profits, how they're harming the church, what to do about it. No, this is not a hit piece, but I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a careful, hopefully thoughtful exploration of some of the challenges we face. This episode is brought to you by Glue. What is really in the way of a stronger prayer culture? Well, believe it or not, texting might help you. You can go to get.glue.us slash prayer to sign up for a free account. That's get.glue.us slash prayer. And onboarding volunteers can be tough. ServeHQ.church makes it so much easier. Go to ServeHQ.church to learn more. Well, so this is our mini-series on integrity. We've got some great guests. We started off with Henry Cloud. We've got Tim Keller coming up. We've got, uh, well, a lot more. And today, it's Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin is the author of Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Profits Are Hurting the Church. She has published several essays at mainstream and Christian outlets, and she serves as the editorial director of Brazos Press and previously served as managing editor of Christianity Today magazine. And this is a really nuanced conversation. Uh, I really wanted to make sure that we just didn't, you know, take one side and slam everything because this is a dilemma. And part of the challenge for me is, okay, if you're actually successful at something, sometimes the platform builds itself. What do you do? Like there are definitely people who seek platforms and we talk about the challenges with that. But what do you do if you just find yourself in a place of influence? And then you got to ask the question and Caitlin and I go there. Okay, you wrote a book. Don't you want it to succeed? I mean, this is a really nuanced conversation. So I'd love to hear from you. By the way, you can shoot me a note at Carrie at CarrieNewhoff.com or hit me up on the socials just at Carrie Newhoff on Instagram, C. Newhoff at most other places. And we'd love to hear your reaction to this. And we want to thank our partners for bringing this to you as well. Uh, when you support them, we get to do this. And remember, when you leave a rating and review, we get to do this day after day and bring you the best guests in the world. So thank you for doing that. Thanks for sharing this with a friend. And I know a lot of you are concerned about prayer culture at your church. And you know what happens with prayer, right? Like the same five people show up all the time. Well, it's simple. You need a couple of things for a better prayer culture. First, what about giving people an easier way to submit prayer requests? Maybe a very private, personal way to submit prayer requests, no matter where they are, location independent. Second, you need a solution for getting more people involved in prayer and prayer follow-up. So how do you make those two things happen? Well, believe it or not, you can use a texting platform to help you do all of that. And once you have your texting number, put that number where anybody can see it, and then they can text in prayer 24-7. So you can put the number around your church. You can feature it on your social, in your community. You can put it on posters and like bus stops, hospital parking lots, telephone poles. You can make fridge magnets, direct mailers. I mean, you can get very creative. And that's how you can also mobilize people to support other people through prayer. So do you want a stronger prayer culture? 
texting can help. And if you want a 100% free texting platform, go to get.glue.us slash prayer and you can sign up for your free account. Just go to get.glue, that's G-L-O-O dot U-S slash prayer and start a stronger prayer culture today. And onboarding new people to volunteer, pretty difficult, particularly at this time in our lives. So a confusing and complicated process is just going to get in the way. People are going to fall through the cracks. You don't want that. So why not get a clear, simple onboarding process to make sure new people are prepared and motivated. To do that, you need a great system, and that's where Serve HQ comes in. Serve HQ provides simple video training courses that can help you equip volunteers and develop leaders, and you can create your own training or use their video library. So small or large church, it works for you. You can even automate the steps so that the onboarding happens and it's less work for you. Check out servehq.church. That's serve letter H, letter Q, dot church for the volunteer onboarding process that will leave your volunteers prepared and motivated. And now my conversation with Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I'll be honest, I, I told you this before we hit record, I was a little bit skeptical or fearful to pick up your book when I saw Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Profits Are Hurting the Church. And I thought it was going to be another hit piece on the church, and I care about church leadership. I, I don't think it was. Uh, what blew me away, and I want to start here because we're going to dissect your thoughts on that, was how much you knew about what is going on inside the head of a pastor, and yet you've never been a pastor, to my knowledge. So do you want to <laughs> unpack that? Like, how did you read our minds? You 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 nailed it. Like, yes. you really did. As a guy who led a church for 20 years, you seem to be very familiar with the temptations. Mm. Well, a couple thoughts. I, I'm I'm grateful to start off to hear that the book does not read as a hit piece because that was not my intention in writing it. In terms of my psychological uh, per perceptiveness regarding <laughs> what pastors are experiencing, I'm thinking of a couple things. My time working at Christianity Today magazine gave me, you know, not a direct experience of church leadership, but observational patterns start to emerge when you're reporting on the church and church leaders and challenges and temptations that a lot of American church pastors are facing. And so in that regard, I'm writing with a, a deep sense of compassion because it is mm. not an easy time to be a pastor. Correct. Yeah. At this, And also, I would say perhaps my accurate read on what pastors are experiencing is coming just from the reality that pastors are people. <laughs> and so while I haven't, while I haven't directly had any kind of church leadership experience, I do know what it's like to be in leadership positions. I do know what it's yeah. like to want people to like and respect you and to um, take you seriously. I know what it's like to want to feel successful in whatever you're doing. So in some ways, maybe it's, you know, these are human problems, not pastor problems. And if any of us were thrust into the spotlight of a dynamic church that's growing or that's struggling, right? Like we would we would face uh, similar inter, inner uh, emotional, spiritual, psychological challenges. 
Well, it's it's extremely well done. And I mean, it's a little bit to me, it was reminiscent of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast now a couple of years ago. Uh, extremely painful and difficult to listen to. But mm. one of the things that really surprised me is, you know, Mark may have been a very extreme example of a lot of those temptations played out on a large scale with a lot of damage in its wake. But I'm like, oh, I know the seed of that. Like, I understand mm-hmm. wanting to throw people under the bus. I understand wanting to block off access. Like, you know, and those may have been more seeds than full-grown weeds in my life. But, um, oh yeah, they were there. And I thought you did a very good job uh, capturing that essence. What is the reaction from pastors who have read the book? Like, what has the reaction been? I'm sure mm. you've gotten everything from one-star reviews to thank yous. <laughs> oh, I, I don't, I've never read any reviews. That's oh, good of course for you. not true. Yeah, That's well, of course not true. <laughs> I read I reviews say, just like Seth everybody Godin. else. <laughs> you and Seth Godin. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I would say probably a lot of readers have come in wondering, okay, is this going to just be a collection of the bad uh, salacious headlines that we've all seen over the last mm-hmm. few years. Well, I don't really mm-hmm. want that. I don't want to just kind of spend 200 pages in the muck. So I want something that's more constructive. So I think yeah. a lot of readers have felt pleasantly surprised that this isn't just a litany of bad news, but it's let's get past the headlines and look at some of the deeper dynamics within the American church so that we can have a healthier church. You know, I'm, I'm writing mm-hmm. as someone who loves the church, who has been a part of a church community, um, you know, since I was very young and want the church to reflect the beauty of the call that it has been given by the Lord. And so wanting to move toward, I don't know if solution is the right word, because I think we would be naive to think that the problem of celebrity might be addressed in like a three-point slideshow, right? I think it's mm-hmm, a little more mm-hmm. complicated than that. Yep, yep. But um, yeah, I, I would say I've been very grateful to have people get to the end of the book and realize, oh, this is coming from a place of love for the church. This isn't biting or bitter, you know, in the ways that some other critiques might be. Um, I would say a critique of the book has been you don't give us a solution or you, you know, you, you kind of spend so much time (laughs) analyzing the problem and I know the problem or I know the problems. And so I was really hoping to, to read a book that would tell us how to get beyond this. And I mean, truthfully, I'm not sure that the problem of celebrity in the church is going away anytime soon. I think in fact, it might, be getting worse before it gets better Mm -hmm. Um, because it is so deeply ingrained in American culture, American church culture. uh, A lot would have to change for us to kind of pluck out this unhealthy root. Um, So yeah, that would be one of the main critiques though, that like, gosh, this, I, I, I want, I want us to get healthier and you don't tell us how to do that. And maybe you and well, I, Carrie, will get into some, uh, maybe some initial steps for church leaders to think about. But I, I don't think that the problem of celebrity is kind of immediately solvable. Or if we just apply this program, then we'll all be better, you know? 
Yeah, I do want to explore that with you, Caitlin, because I think it's a very real issue. And, you know, maybe to use Andy Stanley's language, it's not a problem to be solved, but a tension to be managed. And I think one of the Mm. things that was really helpful to me, because you do that, like you seem to understand, I was just thinking we should get Pat Lencioni to write The Five Temptations of a Pastor, not just The Five Temptations of a CEO. Um, Mm. Because he loves church too, like Patrick really does. But you seem to understand the inner psychology of what's going on in a pastor's mind. And I think that in and of itself, when you kind of go, oh, I'm not the only one to have those thoughts. Oh, I'm not the only one to be, you know, have that dark side to me, whether you act on it or not. Um, I think that's very helpful to have language around that. So I think that is helpful, Mm -hmm. but we'll get into solutions. Let's back up a little bit. So Mm -hmm. historically, because I'm going to argue with you that there is an inevitability to celebrity and we can have fun debating that. But I want to know how celebrity is different from being well-known or well-respected. So for example, Mm -hmm. Mm C.S. Lewis, very well-known, very well-respected, Spurgeon, very well-known, very well-respected. But then there there does seem to be a morphing into celebrity. Like where is, you know, Tim mm. Keller, is he a celebrity or is he just well-known or well-respected? Like where is there mm-hmm. a line? Where is that line? How, does, how do you carve that out? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. You know, early on in this book, I talk about the difference between fame and celebrity. So fame is something, you know, when you talk about someone who is well-liked or well-respected, well, there have been people in every time and place who, because of their leadership accomplishments, you know, in ancient times, their family lineage or military prowess, um, because of their acts or works in the world, their name carries beyond a specific time and place and they gain a kind of renown. And this is, of course, true for Christians as as it is for anybody else. And you know, I don't think fame as a byproduct is a problem. You know, if it comes to you unbidden, you know, as a result of something good that you've contributed to your neighbors or to a community or to to uh, society, then, you know, as Christians, I would say, well, then you have to figure out how to steward it well. But the mm-hmm. fact that you have it, if that you have a measure of fame, is kind of neutral, right? And, uh, you know, on the point of these three men who you just named, I would say from afar, all three of them seem to navigate their fame in their lifetime very, in a, in a healthy, grounded way. And we can talk about like why, what what might have been going on for them that made that so. Celebrity is really a, a distinctly modern phenomenon in that it relies on the tools of mass media to project an image of oneself. And so I think with celebrity, not only do you have the screen and the stage and the spotlight and call all the uh, machinery of mass media that can give others an image of yourself that is much more glowy and impressive than you actually are in your (laughs) normal and fleshed life. But also um, celebrity is the thing that is sought for itself it's not a byproduct mm. per se, but it is, I want to be famous for being, for its own sake. Um, right. This goes back to a a well-known quote from um, the historian Daniel Borston, who was writing in 1962. So this was decades before mm-hmm. social media, which has pulled, which has poured jet fuel onto this problem, I would argue. But he you notably said uh, a celebrity is a person who is well known for being well known or famous for being famous. And so he's underscoring that there's an 
an artifice to it. There's something that is manufactured. Um, and I think, you know, for Christians especially, where problems start to creep in, whether we're talking about celebrity or fame, is the lack of proximity, um, mm. a kind of distance that is created between the persona or the image or the public brand and the person in his or her daily life, kind of who they are behind closed doors or off the screen or off the stage. And when there's a gap there, there can be all sorts of temptations and um, lack of integration, right? Like lack of personal integration. So let's look at Tim Keller. He's a good modern example, alive in our lifetime. Why would you say, and so fame would be, no, I'm not trying to cultivate celebrity. I'm just well-known because, you know, I lead a big church or I've written some books or I'm a persuasive speaker or something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. How would you say he has stewarded things differently than someone who's pursuing celebrity? I should say off the, t off the top that I don't know Tim Keller personally. And so- yeah. I am giving impressions from afar. Mm -hmm. I but would you don't say know most of the people you write about personally, right? Yes, that is correct. But yeah. in, but in terms of assessing someone's spiritual health, I'm like, well, the people who can most who can best reflect on that would be the people who live their lives among Tim Keller, right? As just sure, Tim, sure. not Tim Keller. But having said that, what strikes me about Tim Keller is that he understands or has understood his primary ministry to be to a particular group of people in a particular context and that ministering to those people, understanding the particularities of his ministerial context has been his primary desire is to be a pastor or a shepherd to people. It seems to me that, you know, book deals, speaking engagements, his being a national or international figure came unbidden as a result of Redeemer growing exponentially and then becoming a model for other churches in large, you know, mostly non-Christian cities. So that, that would be one thing that comes to mind is that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it seems to me that the notoriety came afterward as a result of good ministry, not... I'm going to go to New York and become famous <laughs> as being a pastor. And then kind of whatever ministerial work I do is second, second fiddle. Right. So I think I would say his priorities have seemed uh, in the right place. The other thing I'll say about Tim Keller, I mean, I said, I don't know him personally. I have been on a few uh, zoom meetings with him over the last couple of years. And he doesn't, I know I don't get the impression from him that he wants to be seen as anybody other than who he is. You know, mm -hmm. he's not, um, I don't get a sense of pretense or errors or I want you to think of me impressive. It just seems like he's willing and able to show up as Tim Keller, which happens to be a very intelligent, thoughtful <laughs> person mm -hmm. who people look up to and respect. But you know, I think we can tell when we're trying to be impressed or we're trying, we're, we're, we're being given a presentation of the self. Um, you know, and we all have to show up in specific ways in our jobs and our callings. But um, I, I like that Tim Keller 
just seems like a normal guy, you know, like I can imagine sitting next to him on the subway and not feeling like, oh my gosh, it's Tim Keller. (laughs) And I, and I appreciate that despite the fact that he could very easily have leaned into that in his, in his public ministry. That's very consistent with my experience with him, which is largely through this podcast. I interviewed him in person in New York City right before the pandemic and then three other times via Zoom in the last few years or a couple of other times in the last few years. And uh, same thing, very grounded, but also like hyper intelligent. I mean, my gosh, Mm -hmm. that guy has has forgotten more than I will ever remember when it comes to theology and history. And, uh, you know, so there is definitely like, oh, yeah, he's he's bringing it but it just oozes out of who he is. And having read and prayed for seven decades, then I'm trying to impress you. Right. I I think you're describing something like authenticity. Yes, Um, yeah. That that how someone is showing up, even though they have this big following and name recognition, how they show up with others is authentic. You make a link in the book between the decline of the church and the rise of celebrity. How do you see the two as connected? Yeah, well, as you know, and I'm sure you've discussed on this podcast in the past, um, institutions have significantly declined in Western culture and specifically in American life in the last 50, 60 years in terms of how people affiliate with specific institutions, the loyalty that they feel toward them or trust that they have in them. So all institutions from media, entertainment, uh, business, higher education, and of course the church, they're all facing this crisis of trust. Mm -hmm. And in the decline of institutional identity and trust is the rise of individual authority and authority figures who people can still rally around and put their trust in and attach to kind of to understand their selves. You know, my attachment to this person or my trusting this person helps me know where I, who I am and where I belong and what I want to become like. And so our, our culture's fascination with celebrities, you know, just speaks to this, that we're, um, we are much more, almost much more inclined to know the particularities of the lives of people we'll never meet and never know. Like it's so much more interesting to follow celebrity news than to follow, you know, what's the U S state legislator doing this month or like, (laughs) what are these, these, you know, these big institutions that whose work is very slow and boring and procedural, but actually has a profound effect on our shared life. Um, celebrities are just more interesting. They're more, um, we're still we're still looking to attach to authority figures to understand ourselves to tell us how to live what to believe what what is good what is moral it is just the case that our own identity is more likely to be oriented toward a specific charismatic leader or figure than it is an institution and i think in the church the sense just among a lot of churches is that you know, so much less than denominational identity or even theological identity is the personality and persona of the lead pastor or the pastoral team to kind of um, set the course for the life and flavor of the church. And that people are 
in many ways more likely to show up for a particular leader than they are for a particular institutional identity. In some ways, the institutional identity doesn't really matter as long as the leader is, you know, charismatic and powerful and offers that kind of authority. Yeah, I forget whether you mentioned this in your book, but I've read a couple of accounts recently about sort of the strong man or strong woman theory of history that as institutions collapse, we're looking for individuals to sweep in and save us. So, you know, our grandparents might have been, well, I'm Episcopalian or I am Presbyterian or United Methodist, and this happens to be our pastor. Whereas now it's like, oh, here's the pastor. I think we're United Methodist, but I'm not sure. Right. Like, right, do you see right. that trend in our culture and in the church with sort of the strong woman, the strong man replacing the institution? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, people far smarter than me have written about this, like in our, our political life and the rise of um, specific leaders, you know, across the political aisle who captivate much more so than even like party identity or certainly much more than American identity. But yeah, anecdotally, I would just say that in terms of the church culture that I grew up in, I mean, I knew that the church was United Methodist, but my understanding of my own Christian faith was much more about the specific leader at our church, as well as I would say kind of transdenominational evangelical figures and leaders who were offered as mentors or heroes or if I read their books and listened to their music or now, you know, listen to their podcasts, so to, so to speak, um, that was more formative for my own self-understanding as a Christian than was the fact that I attended a United Methodist church. I didn't really know anything about United Methodist history or even Protestant. I, I don't know that I knew <laughs> that I was a Protestant <laughs> until yeah, much yeah, later. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just anecdotally, I think, that that is true. And of course that, um, you know, it's not a problem that we're looking for people to um, admire, to emulate, to look up to, especially in early formative times in our life and in our faith. Um, but I do think it, it raises important questions about um, our commitment to institutions. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm at the end of the day, I'm pro institution because I think institutions are how, cultural goods are created and, and sustained past the lifetime of a particular figure or generation. You know, you know, you mm. need that intergenerational mm -hmm. commitment to the institution to keep it healthy, to keep it in you know, going into the future. And so when we're even when we're thinking about succession plans, you know, how difficult it can be to if especially if you have a very charismatic founding pastor whose identity and personality is woven into the life of the church, it can be really hard for a church community to imagine itself beyond the life or the ministry of that particular leader. And I don't think any of us want churches to die or to shrink mm -hmm. after that person retires or passes away. So that's why this, this institutional identity and commitment is important is that um, we need them to last beyond the lifetime of a particular person. Yeah. So you, you spend quite a bit of time looking at the ministry of Billy Graham. And I'd like you to take us there uh, because he really was sort of, you know, there was him and Amy Semple McPherson and Billy Sunday and so on. But, but Billy Graham in the 20th century really was the massive Christian 
the most well-known Christian. Let's just leave it there in the most neutral language possible. Mm-hmm. What did, because mm-hmm. you've got some critiques for him. What, in your view, did Billy get right and did he get wrong? Mm. Yeah, well, you know, one thing he got right is that millions of people came to Christ because of his mm. preaching and teaching. You know, he understood very early on the power of the tools of mass media to reach many more people than you could just at a crusade, right? Or one-on-one. He understood that media allow us to communicate with millions of people. And he did kind of the world over. And so just thinking about the evangelistic fruit of Billy Graham's life, it's it's pretty massive. Like we, we yeah, can't yeah. even begin to imagine the, mm-hmm. all the lives that were changed because of his preaching and teaching. And so I see that, you know, very much to his credit. I, um, I would say, again, from what I know, Billy Graham was, was a person of integrity. Um, mm-hmm. There has not been a scandal to emerge since his death to, you know, recast his legacy. There are things that I think even he would say later on, I should have done that differently. I was mm-hmm. too bullish about this. I was naive about this, but um, he was a person who desired to have personal integrity and committed himself and the Evangelistic Association early on to specific safeguards around integrity and accountability and transparency. That is very much to his credit. Um, I think he was a very likable person, you know, like I think that he um, really cared about people. He knew how to befriend people. Um, both people in high places like the U.S. presidents, but also in people in you know, developing countries the world over and would stop and take the time to minister to people one-on-one. And that feels very Jesus-like to me. I do think that, you know, in terms of critiques, I do think that Graham was probably a bit naive about the ways that mass media shape the message that you are presenting using it. Um, When we're thinking about television and his televised crusades, it is just the case that hearing the gospel or hearing a gospel message over that medium is going to be different from hearing it in person or in the context of a personal relationship or spiritual community. And there were ways that the work of Graham probably became too oriented around entertainment because it was given in an entertainment medium. So just uh, a little bit of naivete around technology. Um, I think he would have said that he probably spent too much time on the road. You know, he was in high demand the world over. But when you think about um, proximity and being embedded in relationships, you know, that, that requires showing up in a particular time and place over the long haul and being okay with life off the road, off the stage, off the screen. And I, you know, I believe that he believed that to be his calling and that he wanted to obey God. But I think later in life, he would have said, yeah, I was too transient. I was on the road too much. I was away from my family too much. I do think, you know, going back to this individual versus institutional authority, I know that Graham and other leaders wanted people who attended crusades to get plugged into a local church. And they were doing all sorts of work to partner with local churches and point people to the church. 
But I, I do think that that would have been a hard sell for a lot of crusade attenders because there was an element of spectacle and size and high emotion at a crusade. And when you think about life in the local church, it's not, it may not pale in comparison, you know, like <laughs> you may then have to get to know people who really annoy you or your pastor is probably not going to be as good of a public speaker as Billy Graham. Like, I, I do think there was a way in which Graham's presentation of the gospel tended to be individualistic and focus on the relationship between the speaker and the listener, but not really embedded in a community that people were called to commit to after the crusade event. And so I think that that, that is then missing a core component of what it means to be a Christian because it's missing that life in the local church as the place where discipleship happens. So this is great. This is this is really segues nicely into where I want to head next with the conversation. I mean, yeah, I wonder if sometimes there is an inevitability to celebrity. First of all, I'm not disagreeing with you, and particularly in 35-year-old and younger folks, I get a lot of questions all the time. And I love young leaders, love young leaders. Like, how do you build a platform like yours? And I'm like, well, step one, I never tried to build a platform. I just had a couple of hobbies that kind of exploded. And here we are all these years later. There wasn't a strategy. Hmm. I can plot out a strategy in the rearview mirror, but it's not like I sat down with a 10-year plan. I didn't. It just kind of happened. And I think a lot of people who I know, not the people you cover in your book, but when I look at my friendship circle of people who lead some of the largest churches in America, all of them would say, I never set out. Like, yeah, I want to reach more people, but did I expect to start up eight campus, 17 campus, 20 campus thing? I didn't, I didn't intend to do that. You know, here we are, I'm trying to steward it well. There is an almost an accidental mm. inevitability to celebrity mm-hmm. that I think sneaks up on a lot of people. It's just, I started something small. And I had it in a microdose too with the church that I led for 20 years. You know, we started with literally six people, 14 people, 23 people at the three churches. We eventually mm. amalgamated them and it became home to three or 4,000 people. Now in the U.S., that's pretty normal. In Canada, that's kind of, you're an outlier. Um <laughs> but it gave me a platform that mm-hmm. I did not ever think would come. And mm-hmm. you're trying to figure out how to do that. And same thing. I mean, this was a hobby eight years ago. It was like, oh, let's see what happens if I do a podcast. And then it became what it's become. What do you do with that? Like, is there an ine- mm-hmm. inevitability to it? Like, you're right. Billy Graham was experimenting. I don't think he had any idea he would preach to more people than anyone in human history, including the Apostle Paul. I I don't know that that was in his mm-hmm. mind. So what do you do? Just like, Billy, enough. Sit down. Like, mm-hmm. how do you handle that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll start by saying... Of course, I understand the desire for the things that we do to make, although I, I hate this word, but make an impact <laughs> to uh. reach reach people, to positively influence and shape people. We want the things that we do to grow. Now, I don't always know that, hmm, I think organic growth over the long haul in the way you just described for your podcast and for your online work 
is healthier and more sustainable than overnight meteoric rise success story Mm -hmm. that then, you know, overnight I have a million people downloading my sermons. What do I do with that? Psychologically, that is hard to, that is hard to navigate. And so Mm -hmm. I would never tell somebody, um, all growth is bad, but I would say that Mm -hmm. organic growth that comes as a natural result of you doing what you are gifted and called to do is healthier and more grounded and sustainable than I want the meteoric success and I'm going to do everything in my power to try to get it Mm -hmm. because I want to be like that guy. (laughs) Of course, comparison, not a good, not a good uh, thought, you know, practice. Mm. Um, I would say that when, if, and when you find that people are starting to pay attention to what you're doing, that you start to get a following or a fan base, or, you know, people are starting to come to your church to hear you speak. One thing that I love about Graham is that he recognized early on this kind of fame, this kind of following could really go to someone's head. Mm -hmm. I could start believing that actually I can kind of do and say what I want because I'm just that important. (laughs) I'm Billy Graham. Mm -hmm. There could be a kind of hubris to develop around one's success. There could be a sense that I don't really need accountability because everybody likes and trusts me. And um, everybody knows that I'm kind of core to the success of what we're all trying to do. So no one's really going to say the hard thing. So there are, these, there are these little ways in which once we find success or once we find that we have a platform, we can either lean into that and say, I'm really going to grasp at this and I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure this doesn't go away. And I don't want anybody to get in my way. Or there's a way of saying, ooh, I see how this could actually be really unhealthy and um, spiritually damaging, not just for myself, but for our community. So here are the safeguards I'm going to put in place. It could be anything from, I always make sure that 80% of my ministry is with people in person and 20% is on the screen and the stage. But the vast majority of my ministry life is going to be lived among people who really know me and I really know them and life on life. And that's how it's going to have to be to keep me grounded among real people. It could be, um, you know, I got this book deal offer or an agent, um, you know, approached me wanting to represent me. Is that going to take me away from what I believe God is calling me to primarily do when you think about the amount of time it takes to write a book or um, if you are writing the book itself? (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. You know, maybe opportunities come to you, but you're wise and discerning about how it affects your primary calling and not always going for the thing that's immediately going to grow your platform. You know, maybe God has it that your platform would grow in five or 10 years time, but not in the next year or two. What's the rush, right? Kind of trusting, ultimately trusting that, yeah, my platform could rise and it could fall and it could grow and it could, you know, it could ebb and flow, but I'm, I have a healthy detachment from it because I know that the platform isn't the point. The point is the Mm -hmm. work. The point is the ministry. And I trust the Lord that 
success could come and failure could come and I could publish a book and there could be crickets and it's all up to God. It's not up to me. And so I don't, and I'm not looking to this to tell me that I'm a good Christian leader, that I'm worthy, that I'm valued, that I'm anointed. I'm secure in my identity in the Lord. So I don't need that external validation to know myself and to know my gifting and calling. So all of this is very like spiritual and psychological, you know, those would be some things that I would say if somebody is kind of coming to you, Carrie, and asking, okay, what do I do? I'm never going to tell somebody having a platform is bad. I mean, that would be very hypocritical of me, right? <laughs> it, but it is to say, um, why do you want a platform? You know, mm-hmm. what do you expect to get from the platform? What do you want to do with it? How will it, will it affect the other elements of your life and ministry? It's becoming discerning before stepping into the world of platforms because of the temptations that could come if by chance you actually become very successful and turn out to be a celebrity figure. There's so much I agree with you uh, on those points. I think those are really good points. And there's a grounding that happens even if you have a big platform. And the best leaders I know do that extremely well. But you've you've hinted at something a couple of times, both in your critique of Billy Graham and also you said, you know, am I spending 80% of my time with people and maybe 20% of people with on, on video, et cetera, et cetera. So what's mm-hmm. interesting about that is, does that mean that you would categorically preclude digital ministry? Like, you know, there is the mm-hmm. rise of totally online church. Uh, obviously technology is not getting smaller, it's getting bigger. And Billy Graham mm-hmm. did that in a totally different forum. Um, and if you think about it, you know, I, I thought about mentioning this earlier, but I have a friend who once said, uh, and this is his theory, it was sort of tongue in cheek, but I, I think he actually has a point. He said, you know, if you look at the development of the early church in the book of Acts, Peter is supposed to run the whole thing. And Peter's like, well, Jews, Gentiles, I don't know. Should I go to your house? And God has to send an angel like, you know, uh, to go to Cornelius's house. And then one day, God, Jesus kind of goes, you know what? We need someone else and knocks a guy named Saul off of his horse. And mm-hmm. the apostle Paul is born. And in many ways was a first century Billy Graham. I mean, he mm-hmm. went from mm-hmm. town to town, country to country, nation to nation, and never married, didn't have family, had some travel companions, but mm-hmm. broke up with Barnabas and, you know, took other people along with him, Silas and some others. You could you could say, you know, mm. Paul wasn't rooted in community. He did all of his work on the road. Mm. And the reason that you and I grew up in churches can be directly traced back to the work of the Apostle Paul. Like it is, it is perhaps, perhaps it would not have worked out the way it worked out had Saul not been knocked off his horse. So, you know, Mm. and I'm thinking another case study in our generation, Mike's been on the podcast a couple of times, but Michael Todd at Transformation Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, young African-American 30 year old pastor preaches this sermon. They got 400 people. It goes viral on Mm -hmm. Twitter and then on Instagram. And he did literally wake up with a million people watching a message that 200 people had heard the week before. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. he didn't ask for that. He just had good cameras. And I've interviewed him about what that does to your head and everything. But like when that happens, Mm. do you like, how do you steward that? Are you saying Mm -hmm. like, this is a hundred percent virtual company. I don't, you know, I Mm -hmm. got real people Mm -hmm. running it and I meet with leaders on the road all the time. And, you know, 100,000 people will hear this interview or whatever. 
But those are real people. Like, is mm-hmm. it is it mm-hmm. invalid to do digital ministry? Mm-hmm. What if your digital ministry becomes bigger than your in-person ministry? I'm just, those mm-hmm. are real questions, mm-hmm. I think, for this age. And I'd love your take on it. That was sort of rambly, but you see where yeah. I'm coming from. Well, a couple thoughts. Um, when we're talking about itinerant mm-hmm. uh, work, itinerant work. evangelism, yeah. traveling, uh, as Paul did, traveling all over the globe as Billy Graham did. Um, I think of those as very powerful, but very specific exceptions to the norm. Uh, it, uh, which is to say, yes, it probably is the case that you and I are both Christians today because of the work of the Apostle Paul. And also the reason that we know about the Apostle Paul is because most people aren't like the Apostle Paul. <laughs> like, right, right. Um, exactly. exactly. He was a pretty unique yeah. figure Fair. in human history, in church history. And when I think about my growth as a Christian over my lifetime, and when I think about what has had what has shaped me most deeply, maybe not had the most immediate and memorable impact early on, but what really has shaped me and actually kept me a Christian are the normal Christian people like my family, like my parents, who are a Midwestern couple who have stayed committed to one another for 40 years, have lived in the same house for 30 years, have attended the same church for 25 years. These are very, these are like the saltiest of the earth people you can imagine. But the diffuse effect of their life, of their love for the Lord and others, yeah, maybe we can't point to it and say, well, overnight, you know, Tim and Karen Beatty went viral. (laughs) (laughs) But I truly believe that ordinary faithfulness lived out in the lives of people off the screen and off the stage has an incalculable effect for the kingdom. And so I think I would say, no, it's not that it's bad that Michael Todd went viral overnight, but how are we measuring kingdom fruit? And it can't always be tracked by number of hits, number of downloads. YouTube views. Yeah. Yeah. Because You know, I've watched, I've listened to hundreds of podcasts and, you know, read plenty of books by thoughtful Christian leaders. But when I think about, and that's all great, you know, this is, I I think that all of that um, mediated content can play a very important role in people's lives. But when I actually think about what has had the deepest effect in keeping me a Christian, it is one-on-one person-to-person contact with other Christians who are loving Jesus and others very well. So that would be one thing I would say. Um, In terms of digital worship and digital work, you know, of course, we are in a time when we recognize that these tools help us connect with people that we can't connect with in person. You know, I have worked remotely in my day-to-day job for the last four and a half years and um, have not really been able to see my colleagues very much. And gosh, you know, two years ago was immediately like so immensely grateful for the wonders of FaceTime to talk with my family 
when I couldn't see them. Um, and so virtual, digital, yes, these are all instruments that we can use to, as an expression of what God is calling us to do. And that goes for church as well. On the point of church, though, I would say um, I live in a place where churches were not, they were actually not allowed to gather for a time during mm -hmm. COVID. And then kind of, you know, the restrictions loosened and I started attending a church in person. And, you know, we had all these precautions around it, but there was nothing that watching a Zoom service a, a Zoom worship service could ever have approximated in the real, I say real, you know, you know, as, as what's happening online real, well, yes, it is real, but it, it, in my experience, it does not approximate what happens in person among other people. You know, we are embodied creatures, you know, um, we are, we are flesh and blood and um, God made us to connect with each other in that way, to gather in that way. And so it strikes me as well, when we're thinking about the early church, you know, Paul might've been traveling and he had travel companions, but he was also encouraging people to meet, to keep, keep meeting, keep meeting in person, keep breaking bread together, keep um, inviting more in. And no, you know, we're not going to go back to the first century church model anytime soon, but I think there's something there that we can learn from Paul wasn't saying, and then come be like me. All of you also become itinerant preachers. He was saying, continue to meet and gather and remember Christ crucified and care for the vulnerable in your midst. Um, so that, that strikes me. And I think that, and I think that a lot of our neighbors are hungry for that because we spend so much time in front of screens week in and week out or we're, we're actually kind of, we're hungry for in-person connection and can churches offer that, you know, in a unique way that meets the the needs and loneliness of our neighbors. So I want to switch gears a little bit. You outlined three temptations in the book that seem to succumb most of us in leadership when, or seem to apply to most of us in leadership in this digital age. You talk about abusing power, chasing platforms, and creating personas. Can you unpack each of those a little bit and what you mean by them? Because I thought they were very helpful categories. Yeah, these are uh, three temptations. You know, abusing power is pretty straightforward, but I think of celebrity as a kind of power, uh, an interpersonal power over others. And these are the headlines we've seen, you know, in the last few years where someone gets to a kind of elevated status and then uses that to harm others or to get their way. Um, chasing platforms, you know, I'm writing as someone who works full time in the Christian book publishing industry. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot in, in my book about the ascendancy of the platform question in Christian book publishing. And of course, you know, as we've already touched on, it's not that platforms are bad. And I understand the financial and marketing realities of publishing and selling a book. And I have seen over time the ways that platform kind of crowds out other really important considerations and starts to 
it's it's essentially putting the cart before the horse where someone is building a platform for a book that they're not even sure they want to write. <laughs> it's like the platform is the point um, or they can write, you know, um, I don't think everybody well, is. I've, called- I've, I've gotten those books. Yeah. Trust me. There's a difference between a real book and those books. Mm hmm. Yes. Thank you for saying what I didn't feel confident saying. <laughs> no, you can be confident. I get, I get ship books every day and I'm like, why is this a book? Why is like, this what a book? Is, what is going on here? I don't I don't get it. And then you read other books and it's like, oh, this needed to be a book. Like you, you had <laughs> to get is, these This ideas. is an actual book. <laughs> this is an actual book. You had to get that idea out to other humans, but it's like books for the sake of books or I'll take this half digested sermon series and turn it into a... 42,000 word book. I, I'm like, I don't know that the world needs one more of those, but that's, <laughs> I'm so that's glad me. you're saying all of this. Are you? Okay. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But uh, you know, going back to things we've already talked about, just um, a kind of mismatch of priorities and platform mm-hmm. chasing platforms, becoming the main thing rather than a byproduct of good work and good ministry. And the final temptation is creating persona. And persona is a way of talking about the ways that we, you know, show up in public, that we show up in our roles, in our um, responsibilities, people look to us. And I think a lot of pastors experience um, a lot of pressure to show up in a particular way as a leader in the church. Hmm. And they find that they're kind of performing a role for other people to kind of hold things together. And over time, there's this gap between their persona and their their private and interior life. Like, you know, I appear successful. I appear to be the smartest person in the room. I always have to have the right answers. I appear to be the one who's going to carry our organization into success. And then behind closed doors... I'm struggling. I have doubts. Um, I don't know who I can have an honest conversation with. Does anybody really know me? Does anybody mm-hmm. care to know me? Um, and also this pressure is taking a toll on my health, on my relationships, on my marriage. So that that gap, you know, between the persona and the person is it can be very uh, isolating, painful. And I think that's where so many of the problems of celebrity that we've read about start to creep in is in that disconnect. I think that's a really helpful distinction. And I think most people who have put on a microphone to speak on a Sunday morning, even if it's to 150 people or 50 people have felt that pressure in one way or the other. Let's talk about solutions a little bit. So in an article that you wrote, and we'll link to it in the show notes, um, you know, I wasn't sure that you were saying when a megachurch pastor fails that there is a path to restoration. It's interesting. I asked Tim Keller this question recently, and his answer was, actually, I don't know that you can go back to the same job. Like, if if, if you're guilty of a serious moral mm-hmm. breach as a pastor, I think you can do something else with your life, but I'm not sure you get that pastoral platform back, which I thought was mm-hmm. a really interesting answer. Gordon McDonald, on the other hand, in his book, Rebuilding Your Private World, mm-hmm. um, has a whole path set out for mm-hmm. pastoral restoration that I thought was actually also very persuasive. Mm-hmm. What is your take on... Because unfortunately, we see those headlines way more often than anybody wants to. These are real stories with real broken hearts and mm-hmm. congregations that feel like their trust is betrayed, mm. families in tatters, victims, 
you know, <laughs> reeling from what happened. Mm-hmm. Is there a process for restoration if a pastor fails morally? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about the work of Chuck DeGrote, who mm-hmm. is a pastoral care expert and um, counselor and has met with hundreds of pastors in his work. And I interviewed him for my book and we talked about this precise question because, mm. you know, in many cases he's meeting with pastors who have had some kind of moral failure, who have been asked to step out of the spotlight, who are, you know, facing discipline. And they come to Chuck asking, okay, like, what do I need to do? <laughs> what do I need to do? How, how do I get back? Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, how do I get back? Not everybody, of course, but right. that there's a there's a tendency to, gosh, this is really uncomfortable. And so much of my sense of self and identity is about being a pastor. And it feels really good to be a pastor. And I, I just want to get back to where I was. Mm-hmm. And something that Chuck says and told me is that he counsels 10 years out of the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And that very few people take him up on it. Because 10 years, at least to me, feels like a really long time. I mean, an eternity. Yeah. What am I going to do for the next 10 years? If my training, my career training has been oriented around ministry, do I go work at a bank? I mean, it, it, there's something in having to take normal work, quote unquote, that I think can feel really humiliating or disorienting. But I I really trust Chuck on this because he says that is the amount of time it takes to address the deep-rooted wounds and tendencies and temptations and uh, personality dynamics that led to the problems in the first place. And so let's get, let's take the time to get those sorted out, to get health for you and your family, to make sure that if there's hurt people, that there is a path to real repentance, not quick repentance, but kind of real rebuilding of trust. And all of this stuff takes time. And so I I would never say, of course, that pastors who have failed can't be forgiven. You know, that that of course is a non-negotiable. And I do think that there can be a path back to some form of public ministry if the person is willing to take at least 10 years. And Mm. my concern is that the pastors who are coming in to Chuck's office and people like them, what they have in mind as the goal is getting back rather than I want to heal. I want to practice repentance and heal. Good distinction. It's the wanting That's to get back helpful. and I, whatever yeah. jumps, you know, whatever hoops I have to jump through to get there. And that's just not, that is not the goal. You know, that is not the goal. I'm, I'm less sorry for my sin, more sorry that I got caught and it cost me. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. a very helpful distinction. I'm going to remember that. You also tackle profits a little bit. And, you know, if you think about it, denominations are not what they used to be. And they mm-hmm. don't have the funding. Institutions like seminaries, et cetera, et cetera, not what they used to be. And yet everything from book deals to Christian music to other things uh, are, are big issues. I'd love to get your 
take because, I mean, obviously the church needs money to function. There's no question. Mm. And I believe the worker is worth his or her wages and churches should be fair employers and pay a living wage. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there are excesses for sure. I find, I think it was Tony Morgan who told me, you know, the church is one of extremes. You're either broke or you make too much money. Where's the middle? Mm. And I think that's (laughs) a really good thought about that. What are some of the challenges with money in the church these days from your standpoint, Caitlin? Mm -hmm. One challenge is that we don't really talk about it in, mm-hmm. in any, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we talk about it in terms of stewardship and generosity, yeah. but we don't talk about specific um, budgetary items. I don't know. I, I guess I could go look it up if I really wanted to or ask for, it. I don't know what my pastor makes. I have not known what other pastors in my life or church leaders have made. So some of this is about transparency and some of this is about, churches being willing to be held accountable by the people in the church. And I grant that different churches are going to have different senses, you know, kind of culturally and theologically about what's appropriate for a pastor to earn and what is inappropriate. So my role is not to say, if you make more than this as a pastor, you're a bad pastor. Here's the line. Don't cross I have, it. You know, yeah. I have my own hunches, but I'm, I'm very sensitive to you know, this is very contextual and has to be discerned, you know, within a community. I will say there's a difference between earning a particular amount of money and wanting others to know that you make that much money. And this is where we get into opulence and lavish spending. Your and clothes kind of, here. Yeah. Right. I'm going to kind of mismatch between basic Christian concepts of humility and, Mm. and, um, a flashy flashiness. I want to be noticed. I want people to be impressed by me. There are all sorts of ways that we can kind of flash our wealth or be more mindful and humble about it. And so I think when we're talking about prophets in the church, one of my first questions is, does this church leader want me to think that he's rich? You know, whether he whether or not he is actually rich by kind of American standards, does he want me to know that he's rich? Hmm. Um, and if he does, I'm concerned. And maybe perhaps I'm especially concerned if he's not in fact rich and he's just spending hmm. money in a really poor way to try to appear impressive and flashy and you know attract wealthy people to the church. So, yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to humility. I'm thinking again, back to Tim Keller. Um, I don't know what he makes or what he has made Mm. as a pastor. Um, New York city is a, a, you know, notoriously expensive place to live. I do know that Tim Keller and his wife have lived in the same apartment for like 25 or 30 years. It's not in a posh part of the city. He doesn't dress or present in such a way that makes me think, Oh wow. He's, very down to earth. Yeah. Very down to earth. And that that is refreshing to me when mm-hmm. to see that, especially with pastors, you know. Yeah. yeah. So what do you do? I mean, you know, you've you've written a book or two, uh, and you know, my books have not hit the New York Times bestseller list. And uh, but inevitably at some point somebody writes a book or somebody has something that goes viral or sells a lot of copies. Mm-hmm. 
what do you do if it sells a million copies? I mean, that's a lot of money. I interviewed James Clear earlier this year. You know, mm-hmm. his book has sold 10 million copies. Mine, not even close. But I mean, there's a certain point at which, you know, what's your advice to somebody listening who's like, well, I have money and money I wasn't. Let's say they're not even chasing celebrity. Let's just say mm-hmm. they wrote. I mean, my book hasn't come close to the New York Times. Well, it came close, but you know what I mean? Like, I'm not I'm not in that category. But <laughs> and we all kind of secretly wish it would. Don't we, Caitlin? Let's just be honest. Let's get it out there. So that would be fun. That would be. Yeah. Nice. But, yeah. I mean, gosh, um, wouldn't it be terribly ironic if I came on here and was like, I wrote a book where I decry platforms and celebrity, but I really want that book to hit the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> yes. And then this is the interview that pushes it onto the New York Times bestseller this list. This is going to be just, the key. I'm just joking around. This is the key. No, but you know, like again, back to my point earlier, mm-hmm. a lot of the people I know and I hang out with, they write books because they have an idea to communicate. And do we all hope, as you said, it will sell mm-hmm. well? Yeah, of course. I mean, I would mm-hmm. rather, and you say this in your book, you'd rather mm-hmm. have someone read your book than nobody read your book. Like right. there's that that real tension. You're not sitting there going, I hope this flops and Baker loses its shirt on this book. Like no <laughs> author has ever thought that. And I'm actually the first author who wants their book to fail. It's just a little, <laughs> little humble brag. Um. Just, just integrity wise, right? I need this to fail. I need this to not go well. No, yeah. but you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. talking about yes. the dilemma yes. that a lot of us, like nobody wants to stink. If 10,000 people hear this message, mm-hmm. yeah, that would be better than 10 people hearing this message. We're all caught in that kind of trap. So what do you mm. do if you accidentally or with a bit of good fortune succeed? Yeah. What a great question. I don't know what that's like. I mean, <laughs> I, I know what it's like to want a book to succeed and I know what it's yeah. like to look at sales numbers and I know what it's like to check the Amazon rankings. And mm-hmm. I will say shortly after Celebr- Celebrities for Jesus came out, you know, the first month after it came out was not, actually not a fun time at all. I was just mm-hmm. so struck by how much psychologically I had writing on the line, you know, and, and how terrible that was. Caitlin, you, you yeah. wrote a book. I think it's a pretty good book. It, you People are giving, are saying this is really helpful. This is really something that the church could benefit from. And I'm here looking at numbers and I'm looking at what my friend's numbers are and I'm comparing and I feel discouraged. And this is this can't be right. This just can't be. This is not healthy. There's something mm-hmm. at work here that is unhealthy. I'm unhealthily or unduly attached to the success of this. And so just in some conversations with friends and going to uh, actually like a spiritual retreat center where I was speaking and I was going in just thinking this is a professional thing. And then God met me there in an amazing way. It, it, it freed me actually. It freed me from the anxiety and the obsession with what's going to happen with this. So I'm just reflecting on what happens if your book doesn't hit the bestseller list. If it does hit the bestseller list, I mean, I would say celebrate, you know, I I would say, um, you want your ideas and your thoughts and your message to connect with people and to touch lives and to, you know, to, to change hearts and minds. And none of us would be in the world of communication if that weren't true. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I would say there are probably, you know, regarding the financial picture, serious conversations to be had about what this, how this will and will not change your life. Um, I'm thinking about Rick Warren and, you know, I'm confident in saying neither of us will probably have purpose-driven life style meteoric rise because that's like 50 million copies. No, no, no it, not, it's, not it just seems unlikely. I mean, yeah, I don't want to, yeah, yeah, I would say probably not. <laughs> um, but I remember that he publicly committed to tie, you know, he and his wife Kay commit to a reverse tithe, um, mm-hmm. giving away 90%, keeping 10%. Now that's still a lot of money. 10% mm-hmm. on of a lot, f- 10% of the royalties of a book that sells 50 million copies is still a lot of money. But I thought of that as just one step that a leader who has had massive success, one step to say, yeah, we could really live into this, but we're going to put some boundaries and safeguards around our spending, um, as a way to honor the way that God has blessed us and to recognize this is all God's anyway. Like, you know, success or failure, it's all, it all belongs to God. So some of this just gets back to um, a spirit of generosity that flows out from our understanding of what God in Christ has done for us. I'm also thinking, of course, about Eugene Peterson, who had a lot of success with the message transliteration of the Bible my understanding is that he did not write that to get on the bestseller list. It was something that he started writing and playing with actually to minister to people in his church who found the language of scripture boring. And he thought, how could I rephrase this in a way that would really grab people's attention and keep them engaged? And then of course comes this massive bestseller um, and a beautiful, beautiful rendering of scripture and I think at that point, any of us would have probably said to Eugene Peterson, like, you could probably retire. I mean, you don't have to do this like pastoring stuff. Like, gosh, the work of pastoring and sitting with people in their pain and gosh, people can be so annoying. And like, <laughs> you should just enjoy this new era of your life where you don't need to pastor anymore because you are set for life because of this massive bestseller. And instead, he chose to keep pastoring. It was almost like, yeah, I had success and I'm grateful for that. But what's most important are the people who I'm called to shepherd. And that's my, I I know that that's my primary work and I'm going to stay there. And that just seems so, um, so countercultural that in fact, I don't think most Christians would, would take that path. It is truly the path less traveled, but gosh, how, what, what a witness that is, that kind of choices in the midst of success. So quick side note to podcast listeners, we'll link to it in the show notes, but yeah, the origin story of the message and some of his journey about why he kept pastoring is on this podcast in an earlier episode with Eugene Peterson. And then I think the update, I spent the better part of a day with Rick Warren last year. And I think he's now giving away over 98% of everything. And he still mm-hmm. doesn't have his Ford Red Ranger, but I drove in his car on the way to the, the shoot for the podcast. 
and it looks like anything any suburban parent would drive to soccer on a weekend. It's fascinating. You know, I think it was a Ford. But Mm -hmm. yeah, those are really good examples. And I'm glad, you know, as much as we could just focus on all the people who've fallen to focus on some people who appear from everything we can tell Mm -hmm. on the outside, looking in based on what we know Mm -hmm. to be doing it well in our generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Caitlin, this has been super, super helpful. I appreciate the nuance. I appreciate the wrestling and uh, what you shared earlier about, yeah, I I was disappointed when my book didn't sell what I thought it would. It is a real book. It's a good book. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do hope that people pick this up. But that's that's why you understand the mind of a pastor. Of course, we all hope that (laughs) more people are going to hear our message. Of course, we all hope for more people this Sunday than we had last Sunday. Of course, we all hope that more people are going to listen to this episode rather than less people. Like there is that inherent Mm -hmm. human desire. And I'm not sure that's all from Satan. I think there, Mm -hmm. you know, what really, I'd love to read a psychological profile of the Apostle Paul. That would be fascinating. What was really driving that guy? I don't know. But God used it. He really used it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's really well said. And we all want fruit. You know, we all want to know mm-hmm. that our work matters and is connecting. And it feels good when something is connecting and we can see it in a real tangible way. I think a reframe for me and perhaps for your listeners is thinking about fruit as something that can't always be measured can't always be seen on a graph or a chart, can't always be seen in book sales, but believing that God honors our good work and our desire to to serve him and his people and ultimately trusting him with the results. And a really good question to ask too, and you, you raised this in the context of Eugene Peterson, but like, what would you do if you didn't have to work anymore? I found that a very interesting question mm. because... I've interviewed a lot of people here who could have retired a long time ago. Not mm-hmm. everybody, but, you know, more than a fair share of people who could have been like, yeah, I got enough bank just to coast or mm-hmm. whatever. And I've been most inspired by the people who are like, yeah, money's secondary. Let's uh, mm. let's do some good work, not to make more money, right. but, you know, to give back, to make a difference, to make an impact. That word you're not a huge fan of, but I think it it's still got a little bit of legs left. Mm-hmm. Any final words, Caitlin, for people as they struggle with it? And again, thank you for your work. It was really meaningful to me, and I hope people do pick up the book. And uh, I think it's an important contribution to the moment and the dialogue we're in right now. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your thoughtful engagement with it, Carrie. Mm-hmm for not a bestseller book. You, you're, oh, you're paying attention to the... <laughs> I, I really appreciate... Otherwise, I wouldn't have asked you. Yeah. Yeah, and I really appreciate the the points of pushback you offered or kind of like, okay, but, but for real. Like, let's talk about numbers. <laughs> let's talk about platform. What do you do? Because I recognize yeah. that as someone who is not in pastoral ministry and is mostly observing it from the outside as a writer and journalist... Um, it could be easy for me to say, uh, you know, pastors shouldn't make any more for pastors shouldn't make any more than X amount or no pastor should ever have a, a platform or we should never do virtual church. And I think so much of this is contextual and based mm-hmm. in discernment and wisdom. And so I trust that more people will find this book and find ways to 
apply its broader principles to their own specific context that nonetheless resists the temptations of celebrity gone wrong that we've seen so clearly in the last several years. Well, it's an important contribution, I think, to the dialogue. I just want to thank you so much for saying yes, and thanks for writing the book and for the work you're doing, and and be encouraged and keep asking really important questions. We need those questions to be asked, and we need your voice in this debate. So, Caitlin, um, where can people find you online? Obviously, the book, Celebrities for Jesus, anywhere you get your books, but where can they track with you these days? The best place to go is CaitlinBeatty.com. I have a list of articles and essays as well as podcast interviews I've done there. Um, I do have some speaking engagements coming up in 2023. And you can find all of my uh, social media information there. If you want to drop me a line, I get mail, (laughs) (laughs) both fan mail and critical mail (laughs) through the website. So if you're so inspired, I'd love to hear from you. But CaitlinBeatty.com is a great place to start. Caitlin, thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for hosting it. Well, I really appreciated that conversation. And you know what? It's a good book too. I really enjoyed it. I was a little nervous to read it as I indicated, but I'll tell you, it was a really good book and I'm glad we're having this conversation. So we got a few more episodes to go in this mini series on integrity. And next time we sit down and talk to Eugene and Jan Peterson's son, Eric, and also Eugene's biographer, Wynn Collier. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Here's an excerpt. He was just talking about this invitation that he'd received. It was an invitation to be a like a keynote speaker at a stadium event, like a 40,000-person uh, venue in South America. And he's kind of hemming and hawing around this invitation and kind of whether to go. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, you're Eugene Peterson, and this is a unique voice that the world needs to hear and What's yeah. the problem here? You know, we're gonna we're gonna multiply your influence, and we're gonna we're gonna see the prayer of Jabez. You know, go all you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so finally, I just said, "Dad, what are you worried about? Or what are you afraid of?" Yeah. And I, I think this memory will haunt me till the day I die. He looked me right in the eye, and he said, "Eric, I'm afraid of losing my soul." That's coming up next time. Oh, and by the way, if you want show notes for today or anything in the series, go to kerryneuhoff.com. The ones for today's episode will be at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 579. That includes transcripts. And also coming up on the podcast, and again, if you subscribe, you're going to get this automatically. You know, the vast majority of people who listen to a podcast like this don't subscribe. So change that up. You won't miss a thing. Just hit subscribe wherever you're listening and then share with a friend. We'd appreciate it. We've got Chuck DeGroat coming up on narcissism in the church. Also still to come in this series, Colin Hansen, Tim Keller's biographer. And then we have a Tim Keller special coming up. I can't wait to tell you about it. Also, coming on to the podcast, we've got John Christ, John Maxwell, Jenny Catron, Grant and Cheyenne Skeldon, Richard Foster, Judah and Chelsea Smith, Kevin Kelly, and a whole lot more coming up. Thank you so much for listening. And hey, if you enjoy reading some really curious stuff, make sure you subscribe to my On The Rise newsletter. Every Friday, I send this out to over 85,000 leaders. And I send you the best links I can find almost 90% of the time, not to my content, to other people's content 
on some of the most curious and helpful things on faith, the culture, the future church, and basically what's caught my eye that week. You can go to ontherisenewsletter.com for free. Super easy to subscribe, very easy to unsubscribe as well. You'll get my best curated content about faith, culture, and more. Just go to ontherisenewsletter.com. Well, I can't wait for part three of the Integrity Series. Thank you so much for listening. And hey, give me some feedback. Hit me up at Carrie at kerrynewhoff.com or on the socials. And I hope our time together today has helped you identify and maybe even break the next growth barrier you're facing.